Welcome to Mocktails and Masterpieces with the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra. Today's episode is sponsored by Anthony Team Realty. Greetings, everyone. It's another Mocktails and Masterpieces. I'm Matthew Kramer, Music Director of the Indianapolis Chamber Orchestra. I'm delighted to be joined today by our marvelous guest artist for the upcoming program, Silence Voices. Julian Rhee is with us. Good to see you, Julian. Hello, hello. Good to be here. Maybe you could tell uh, tell our audiences a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself. Many of them are familiar with you, with your work in Indianapolis, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But for those who don't have the, haven't had the opportunity to get to know you, introductions are always welcome. Absolutely. So my name is Julian. I was born and raised in Wisconsin. So I'm from the Midwest and I did all of my studies in Chicago. So my mom drove me down to Chicago every weekend. So that's where I did all of my musical studies. And then now I'm currently based in Boston. So I'm at studying at the New England Conservatory. I was there for my undergrad, and now I'm finishing my second year of master's there. So this is year number six, living in Boston. And a very musical family, I understand as well. You're not the only musician in your family. That's right. So my older sister, she just joined the New York Philharmonic. She's a fantastic violist. She just won the job this past April or May. So she graduated from Juilliard last year, and then as soon as she graduated, she faced right into um, life still in New York in the, in the Philharmonic. And one of the finest orchestras in the country. That's quite an accomplishment. I'm wondering if you could talk, could talk to us a little bit about uh, your your early experiences with music. How did a violin end up in your hands? Yeah, um, you know, I sometimes when this question comes up, I wish I had a, <laughs> a particularly inspiring story, but it always comes back to my mom was a big fan of the violin. Um, she loved the sound of violin. And so growing up, my mom just basically put the violin in my hands and said, play. <laughs> so it ended up something I, I actually, funny enough, I was pushed into doing it at the beginning. And then it actually was a process for me as it went along. It, it, there was a lot of steps to that, but it took me some time to figure out my relationship with the instrument. Actually, it wasn't something I knew from the beginning that this was, you know, this is my thing, this is what I want to do. It, it kind of evolved with me. So it was a kind of symbiotic relationship as it progressed along. But it the impetus was was started by my mom. Do you have a particular moment in your life where it just clicked, where it resonated with you that this is something that you wanted to pursue passionately, you know, as a career? Yeah, you know, there, there are a few moments along the way, but the the most poignant would probably be when I decided actually where I wanted to go to school for college. And so my teacher, Miriam Freed, um, was a huge part of that process. And once I decided to go to conservatory and fully commit myself to music and not you know, I was at the time doing a lot of academics and music, so I was splitting my time. But that moment of deciding that I was putting myself on one path with this person who was going to help build me um, into the musician I am, that was, I think, that moment when I it clarified for me that all of my intention and energy was going to be in this. You've received numerous accolades and distinctions in a very short amount of time. You know, our Indianapolis audiences who would be familiar with you are from the International Violin Competition, the most prominent Western Hemisphere violin competition there is, and as a silver medalist with that, you know, competitions are fascinating. I mean, you're making music uh, in front of orchestras, solo recitals, chamber music, but a competition is a very different thing, especially one at this level. Could you talk to us a little bit about the experiences of being in a competition with not only an audience you know, critically analyzing everything, but a jury of 10 distinguished violinists looking upon you? Absolutely. Um it's one of those things that it's hard to understand until you're kind of in that position or in the foxhole and you're doing it. And I think, 
you know, of course, the months and months of preparation is, is, is a necessity. But then when you're there, the mental aspect of trying to feel the performance as if it's truly just a performance. Um, I think when it feels like it's a competition, there's a feeling of evaluation and judgment that comes with that naturally. Um, and so trying not to get into that mindset, but trying to actually find it within yourself to feel spontaneous, to feel free, to take those risks and to try to really connect with people in the audience, you know, it's, it's an alive, you know, thing. And so even the audience in Indianapolis, I remember many of those rounds, the audience would be incredibly passionate and excited. And so I feed off of that as well. So to tap into that was trickier just because there's that one extra buffer of feeling like, okay, I'm playing for, you know, judges, esteemed judges who are, you know, evaluating me on a particular level. So to get back to that kind of micro level of connection between person to person is something that sometimes you have to find within yourself and it comes with a little bit of that experience. So that's something that I had to go through a lot and I'm still going through it as we speak. That's phenomenal. Uh, you've generously offered to, uh, to perform a little bit on this broadcast. Could you share a little bit about what uh, the audience will hear you uh, performing here? Absolutely. This is, uh, you'll hear a little clip of Stravinsky's Violin Concerto, just become one of my personal favorites. It's a concerto that's actually not played too often, but I would play it here actually in Boston with the orchestra here at New England Conservatory um, in the wonderful Jordan Hall. And it's a masterpiece too. This is Julian Reed performing an excerpt from the Stravinsky Violin Concerto. Thank you. 
Julian, that was marvelous. Thank you for sharing that with us. When you're joining us on the Schrod stage, uh, you'll be performing a different concerto, but this is one of the, uh, probably, you know, the preeminent violin concerto up there with maybe three or four others that are regarded as highly as it is the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, of course. First of all, do you remember when you first studied it? It's probably got to be sometime in middle school. It's one of those pieces. You know, it's funny because Mendelssohn is one of those pieces that a lot of violinists, you know, start when they're young, which is, it's funny how it works that way that some concertos are just ones that circulate when you're younger. But I've actually found this to be one of the most difficult to perform as I'm going along. The more I'm doing it, the more I'm thinking, wow, I did this when I was 13. <laughs> like, wow, that was quite the choice. So it's it's something that actually, as it's continued, it's up with that a lot of pieces, but in particular things like Mendelssohn is something I, you know, heard a lot growing up and I played when I was young, but now I'm doing it. I, I actually find it more difficult for some reason now. You're absolutely right. It's almost like when you're young, you don't really understand the complexity of the piece, how challenging that opening theme is, mm -hmm. how exposed it is right up there. The slightest miscalculation, an out of tune note, a bad shift, a crunch with the bow, anything. It's a high wire act at Marvel. The Brook Violin Concerto, the first one is exactly the same way. We've all suffered through it. I'm a violinist in a former life. Uh, uh, you know, somebody crunching that first chord horrendously. We study these pieces and yeah. then we mature and we realize the masterpieces that they are. They're building blocks for us, but it is a marvelous piece. I mean, the opening of it is iconic and that's the word we throw around a lot, but it, it is one of those really memorable openings. How is your, not only obviously your musicality and your technique has grown as everyone does over time, but how has your approach to the concerto changed? I mean, have you now, having performed it as many times as you have, kind of come to it with new eyes, new ears? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the biggest thing that's changed for me is, in a lot of ways, realizing how much freedom there is to choose what you want to say within the confines of what is tasteful, I guess. And so what I mean by that is that, um, you know, there are a lot of traditions, a lot of markings, a lot of things. So a lot of times it's it's tricky for us to figure out, okay, how do I say something that's personal and that's surprising, but is still abiding by what Mendelssohn himself wrote as well. So as I'm going along, I'm realizing actually there's more and more freedom within that to choose what I want to say. So even with the openings we talked about, the very opening is marked Allegro Appassionato, Molto Appassionato, but then originally in the manuscript is written allegro con fuoco and so even that marking for example so with fire or very passionately what what does that mean and so as i'm having more time to spend with the piece i'm having more opportunities to actually start to figure out okay what kind of sound as you said in the opening what, what kind of opening is it is how open is it how how energetic is it? and so i've realized actually the more you look and the more information you have, the more freedom you have to choose. And in a way, when you're younger, as, as you mentioned, ignorance is bliss in a funny way. It kind of works both ways. You're not really, you probably, I didn't even know those kinds of things, or I never thought about those things. But in that way, is there's a kind of freedom to and just having an approach. But the more you grow with it, the more now you have that leeway and the more nuance you can add to coloring the kinds of things you want to do. I, I This is beautifully said. I couldn't have said it better myself. It all comes with this maturity that we hopefully enjoy as artists that it's more than the printed notes on the page you begin to realize that there's a lot of room outside of that uh, for us to bring our own personal insights into it our, our personalities certainly um you know again these these uh, accolades that you've accrued in a very short amount of time have been absolutely outstanding we look forward to working with you on this concerto coming back to revisiting a familiar friend as i often like to say 
uh, in the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. Can you tell us about some of the activities that you've got uh, in your calendar here? You're a very, very busy person. I don't know where you find the time for your academic work as you're finishing up now in Boston, your master's degree, but also all your concertizing. Where, where will you be these days in the 2024 year? Yeah, it's, you know, it's always a balance to figure out how to do that with school. But um, next semester in particular, I'll be making my debut in Germany, actually in Hamburg um, with the Hamburg Ballet. And then I'll start some things with um, the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. And so I'll be part of their program starting next year officially in 2024 fall. But there's some things we'll do on tour in, in Florida in particular this upcoming season. So both um, traveling more abroad as well as doing things in chamber music um, that's based in New York typically um, are things that will be coming up more this year. That's phenomenal. And I understand you have a pretty nice violin you're, uh, you're playing on these days. I'm very, very lucky. That is that is for sure. Um, I'm playing on the 1699 Lady Tenant Stradivari on loan generously through Biden Fushi, which is a wonderful shop in Chicago and the Stradivari Society, as well as the Mary B. Galvin Foundation. And so they've, I've been working with Biden Fushi and the Stradivari Society since I was so ever since we started coming down to Chicago, this is the shop I went, I gave my instrument, they helped me out, and then they've been incredibly generous to allow me to play on this, this Stradivari that I've been playing now for the last year and a half or so. And so that's been a huge learning curve for me too, to figure out you know, what to do with an instrument that gives me those kinds of possibilities. I want to talk more about that, actually, because you know we live in an age where a cell phone is only good for a year until the next upgrade comes along. All the technology <laughs> becomes obsolete in no time or another. But we are still not able to find out exactly why these instruments are as uh, masterful and, and magical as they really are, whether it's the wood, the varnish, the craftsmanship, how they continue to age and get better with time. Uh, what, what is it like to play on an instrument like this that you said can, can give every, everything that you ask for? It's a bit surreal, I have to say. It's one of those, I had heard a lot about these kinds of instruments and always was slightly skeptical as I thought, how could a wooden box be possibly be so alive and yet it is and it's um i think it's if, if people ask me what well, what's the difference between something like a stradivari and other instruments well what what makes it that special when you're playing and i think um it's mostly the slightest differences in speed and weight in um just little changes you make to your bow pressure points where you're on in the string it reacts immediately. So the instrument is incredibly sensitive. And so I also take it in very often, but the slightest shifts and changes you make, it responds. And so there are so many layers and gradients of colors and sounds and possibilities that if you're willing to take the time to explore those things, it's a bit surreal. I, you know, the, I never had the opportunity to um, take a piece like Mendelssohn, for example, and you practice that opening and just the slightest pressure creates you mentioned like brook for example it creates a little crunch or it's a bit pressed or the little bit of speed creates a whole nother sound so the strad has all of these um kind of different permutations of possibilities um of, of combinations of things so it actually forces the performer to also work to it too so it's it, you work to each other it's actually not that the strad just plays the way you want it to you have to figure it out too and so it's actually affected my playing style as well, because I've had to understand it and then it kind of shapes around me. So in a way, it's a very two-way street kind of relationship, which is crazy with an inanimate object, but <laughs> somehow it is that way. Totally fascinating. Julian, I want to thank you for spending a little bit of time with us. 
allowing our patrons to get to know you. Julian will be featured in a program entitled Silence Voices, composers that were banned during the Nazi era. Mendelssohn, of course, Franz Schrecker's Commerce Symphony will be performed as well. Uh, Straussiana by Erich Korngold, and we have a world premiere by Victoria Bond entitled Anne Frank's Tree. There's actually a sapling of Anne Frank's Tree at the Children's Museum in Indianapolis. Victoria has written a piece inspired by this with a beautiful story to tell. Julian, again, thanks for joining us. We look very, very much forward to your Mendelssohn Concerto with us in January. Thank you so much. We'll see you all soon. Bye-bye.